It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 334, the 17th of February, 2013. This week, ready to make a slideshow? It's easy. Correcting an old error. And in short circuits, sales of Apple notebooks has dropped, possibly because of the popularity of the iPad, Apple facing two lawsuits by investors, and an executive order by the president aims to give businesses that operate critical infrastructure systems cybersecurity information, but Congress really needs to become involved. Following a birthday party, an anniversary dinner, a wedding, or a vacation, you might want to share some of your images with others. In the very old days, that meant dragging out a screen and a slide projector. Or you could have prints made and send them to people. More recently, we've been able to email photos or post them on Facebook or Flickr or any of the other social media. But some people want to do more than that. They want a presentation, maybe with music, maybe with narration, images that fade from one to the next. If that describes you, take a look at Magic's Photo Story Easy. Although Magix calls the application PhotoStory easy, it can handle video clips, so it's possible to combine still and motion images in a single presentation. Now, Magix is a well-known name in Europe, it's headquartered in Germany, but somewhat less known in the United States. To test PhotoStory easy, I started with nearly 100 images of one of the cats, Tangerine. He died in 2010. After importing all of the images, I looked through them and eliminated the ones that seemed not to fit, the duplicates, and the ones that had some technical flaws. Although the on-screen time can be set for each individual image, I started with 5 seconds for all of the images and modified the times for a few images later. The time display might be a bit confusing for amateur users. Five seconds, for example, is displayed as 00 colon 04 colon 29. 29? The NTSC, or National Television System Committee Standard, calls for 29.97 frames per second. So 4 colon 29 is really five seconds, more or less. The NTSC system, which some video engineers say really means never twice the same color, is the analog television system used in North America, South America, except Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, and French Guiana, also used in Myanmar, South Korea, Taiwan, Japan, and the Philippines, and some of the Pacific Island nations. One of the new features in this version is called soft tracking. You may know this better as the Ken Burns effect. Ken Burns didn't invent the effect, but he has used it so frequently and so well in creating documentaries that rely on the use of still images that his name has become associated with it. The effect is created by slowly zooming in or out, panning vertically or horizontally, and using various crossfade transitions between frames. The result is a more lively and animated production when you're limited to still images. PhotoStory Easy allows the addition of a music track and a separate narration track. The narration track automatically takes precedence over the music track, so the slideshow creator doesn't have to make each adjustment manually. I was disappointed by not being able to create a crossfade between various tracks on the music track. 
and the automatic fade-out at the end, that's abrupt to the point of being harsh. An alternative, of course, would be to create a soundtrack using an audio program and then using that recorded soundtrack on the PhotoStory Easy Music Track. There's even an option to allow Magix to create the soundtrack for you. According to Magix, you select the appropriate style and a wizard will take care of the rest for you. All songs are professionally composed, they say, and transform any slideshow into an audio and visual work of art. The program's interface has been updated to be easier for beginners to navigate. Be sure to check out the TechBiter Worldwide website and you'll see a screenshot that shows you where you can choose whether you want to modify images with set and view or work with audio files or record narration in the audio section, add titles in the text section, select transition or add decorations to the images. Once you've selected one of those, you'll have a selection of related activities in other tabs. And once you've done that, you'll have a series of additional methods you can use to work on whatever it is you've selected. Overall, it's a very good user interface, and it plays well with others. PhotoStory Easy can import media from all the usual suspects, secure digital cards, USB flash drives, internal or external hard drives, and digital cameras. Once you have the images in the application, you can modify the exposure, color, contrast, color saturation, and gamma. There's even an option that allows PhotoStory to correct all of the images automatically, and I found that this works surprisingly well. After I applied it to all of the photos in my test set, only a few needed further manual tweaking. I didn't need to use it, but PhotoStory Easy also includes red-eye correction. In my little test presentation, I set crossfade transitions between each pair of images. Transitions are like spice. If you use too much, you'll spoil the dish. Basic Cuts and simple crossfades are almost always the best choice, even though PhotoStory Easy includes other transition effects. If you use them, use them cautiously and use them sparingly. You can, of course, create title slides or add text to any image. As with transitions, this is a feature that needs to be used with care. For my test, I created only one image with a text overlay, the first image. Text placement isn't entirely freeform. Instead, you use the arrow keys to nudge the text into place. The movements are in relatively large increments, but I still found that placing the text where I wanted it wasn't really difficult. Allowing the user to sample a color from the image to use in the text would be helpful, but I didn't find that. PhotoStory Easy includes a variety of 150 or so sound effects and what Magix calls decorations that can be placed on top of images. Some of these decorations are animated. You may notice that I didn't use any of those. Magix says that PhotoStory Easy can be used to combine individual pictures into horizontal or vertical panoramas. I didn't have on hand any series of images suitable for this, but the application is said to include automatic focal length detection and that it's able to correct lens distortion and perspectives. Creating a file for a computer, a CD, or a DVD is easy. Creating a file that you can send to others or use on a website turned out not to be so easy. I tried to upload the Tangerine video from PhotoStory three times, and each time Flickr received only the first half of the video, even though PhotoStory reported a completely successful upload. Then I tried uploading a previously exported version manually. 
Apparently, Flickr, which is a Yahoo operation, has a limit of about 1 minute 30 seconds. There's no message indicating failure. Now, this isn't a photo story problem, but it's annoying nonetheless. Next, I tried to upload to Vimeo, but Vimeo didn't like the file's compression mode, or given that it was a WMV file, the lack of compression. So, then I tried using the Magic's online option. It wanted to sell me a Kodak for H.264 formats, but I opted out of that for now and tried to log in using my existing account. The login failed. Because I told PhotoStory to remember my password, it always tries to log me in and always fails. There's no apparent method to change the password in PhotoStory. Now this is PhotoStory's error and it's very annoying. To create a video using the H.264 format, I needed an extra cost codec. Granted, it's just $5, but having to acquire it separately is still a bit of an annoyance. At least the activation process was quick, took less than a minute. Then I was able to create a new file, but Vimeo rejected it, and no wonder. By that time, the 68 megabyte file as an uncompressed WMV had expanded to 336 megabytes as an MP4. For a process that's supposed to be easy, this wasn't working out too well. Well, then I tried exporting it as an Android tablet video, high resolution, and at the end of that process, PhotoStory offered me an option to choose the location for the file, which overwrote, without any warning, the existing MP file that I'd created previously. Well, at this point, the MP file was only, only 193 megabytes, and astonishingly, Vimeo accepted it. There were entirely too many problems trying to upload videos using the various options provided by the application. Eventually, though, I was successful, and you can see the resulting video on Vimeo. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Moving back a few steps to the installation, I found that to be a bit less than straightforward. Downloading the installation file results only in a stub file that calls the actual installer that's on the Magic's website. I don't like this process, and I much prefer to download the entire application and save it to a directory on the local machine before starting the installation. It just eliminates problems. My internet connection is sufficiently reliable that I can count on the download to finish, but that's not the case for all people. The installer also offers an option to install SimpliCheck. I selected not to install that. It's not a bad application, but most people simply don't need it. Let's say you have a sore arm and you visit your doctor. The doctor examines your arm and makes some suggestions. Then, before the doctor can finish, another doctor walks in and starts making additional recommendations that don't agree with your doctor's recommendations. So, assuming you already have some protective software on your computer, you don't need additional recommendations from another piece of protective software. And then you're offered the option to install the Magic's Ask toolbar. My policy is never to install a toolbar that I didn't explicitly ask for. Some people like Ask.com. Some people hate Ask.com. I find the site useful occasionally, but I don't want anything to default to Ask.com. So I cleared the checkbox there. And when you start the application, you'll be offered an introductory video. If you click the option, well, that's nice, but you're going to be taken to a site that offers videos in languages other than English. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll find a link to the English language version of that file. 
So the bottom line for Magic's photo story easy. For cats, it really is easy, but watch out for a few gotchas. I like the way Photo Story Easy works. It's a good, solid application that really easily rates four cats. I'd be happy to increase that rating to five cats if the installation didn't install unwanted features by default, and if the export feature worked just a little better. For more information, check out the Magic's Photo Story Easy website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In 2005, apparently feeling a bit of nostalgia, I wrote an article about old computer hardware. In that article, I mistakenly described the world's first mouse, the one created at the Palo Alto Research Center. This year, I heard from Wolfgang Gunther, who set me straight and also provided some additional information and some background that I think you'll enjoy. In that earlier program, I wrote that the original Mac was pitifully slow and that Apple was still using that squared-off, single-button mouse that they borrowed from Park. Today's Apple mice are rounder, I said, but they still haven't deviated from Park's original one-button specification. Wrong. As it turns out, the one-button mouse can be blamed entirely on Apple. Wolfgang Gunther explained, and I quote, The original Park Mouse had three buttons. I use the Alto at Xerox. In fact, when I get back to my desktop Mac, I may find and send to you the Alto manual. It was Steve Jobs who deemed it too complicated and made us work with a single button. Gunther did find that file, and he sent it to me. Although it's been nearly eight years since I wrote that, back in February 20th of 2005, the correction is appropriate, if not timely. A presentation by Microsoft Research's Butler Lampson in October of 2006 addressed some of the challenges faced by those who worked at Park. Gunther provided a copy of Butler's PowerPoint presentation called The Alto and Ethernet System Xerox Park in the 1970s. At the time, Butler was looking back 30 years. And now, seven years on, we can look back at that presentation. For $12,000, Park was able to build a computer with a display that had slightly better resolution than televisions of the day. 2.5 megabytes of disk space, and that's about a quarter of what one current raw digital image would consume these days. Oh, and 128 kilobytes of RAM. Note particularly, though, when you see the image on the TechBiter Worldwide website, that the Alto did have a three-button mouse. Butler Lampson's presentation compared the 1973 Alto to 2006 desktop personal computers. For example, the Alto had a 6 megahertz clock back in 1973. By 2006, the average computer had a 3 gigahertz clock. RAM size back in 73, 128 kilobytes, that had increased to 1 gigabyte in 2006. Perhaps one of the biggest changes, though, is the Alto's price, $12,000, compared to a desktop PC in 2006 of about $1,000. I leave it as an exercise for you to make the comparisons between those models and the computers you could buy today for three dollars to $500. Also on the TechBiter Worldwide website, there's a photo of the Alto in operation. You'll see a big box in the lower left. Well, that's the computer. And the large opening near the top of that big box is the slot where the disk platter was inserted. 
You'll also see a picture of Park's slot printer. Slot stands for Scanning Laser Output Terminal. And if you'd like to read more about slot printers, you'll find a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website. By 1981, Xerox had developed the Star Office system. It was a high-priced system that used a proprietary operating system. And at $20,000, Xerox didn't find very many buyers. Interestingly, Apple's Lisa failed several years later for exactly the same reason. Sometimes the right choice is simply to make something that's good enough for the time and to allow better products to be developed when technology is ready. My thanks go out to Wolfgang Gunther both for the correction and for a fascinating resource that should serve as a reminder to all of us regarding just how far technology has advanced, not only in the past 40 years, but even in the past half-dozen years. And on a related note, you might find CBS journalist Walter Cronkite's view of what the office of the future might look like. He made some predictions back in 1967. They are both amusing because the implementation is completely wrong, yet they're prescient because the conclusions are exactly right. You'll find a link to that video from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, some good news. If you wanted a MacBook but waited, well, you can buy one for less. Apple has a problem. You see, the iPad is so hugely popular that it seems to be hurting sales of the more expensive and more profitable MacBooks. This has investors worried, but CEO Tim Cook says there's nothing to worry about, but then came a price drop. The Apple MacBook sales dropped 21% in the last quarter of 2012 compared to the same quarter in 2011, and Apple missed Wall Street's revenue forecast for the third straight quarter. Apple dropped the price of its base 13-inch MacBook Pro laptop by $200. That model with the Retina display will now sell for $1,500 instead of $1,700. And the price of a 13-inch MacBook Air laptop with 256 gigabytes of flash memory dropped $100 to $1,300. The company maintained the same price on its 15-inch MacBook Pro, but added a faster 2.4 gigahertz quad-core processor and upgraded the top-end 15-inch notebook to a 2.7 gigahertz quad-core processor with 16 gigabytes of memory. A couple of Apple shareholders are now suing the company. A Pennsylvania investor has filed the second suit in New York's U.S. District Court to stop the company from voting on a measure regarding preferred stock. That issue is the same as in a suit brought by hedge fund manager David Einhorn. Another issue in Brian Gralnick's suit differs from Einhorn's. Einhorn's primary goal seems to be to obtain a payout from Apple's large amount of readily available cash. Gronlich's suit addresses two proxy proposals. Preferred stock, according to Wikipedia, is an equity security with properties of both an equity and a debt instrument. Preferred stock ranks higher than common stock, but below bonds in terms of rights to their share of the assets of the company. Preferred stock usually carries no voting rights. 
Graunick's other issue involves the rights of shareholders to have some control over the compensation of Apple's executives. He will seek to have his claim heard next week when Einhorn's case is in court. Einhorn and his Greenlight Capital had previously filed suit against Apple to force Apple to distribute some of its $137 billion in available cash to investors. Opinion time, or perhaps editorial. We can't say we haven't been warned. President Obama this week signed an executive order to ensure that the government makes available to private companies information on threats to computer security. Congress failed to pass legislation that would have provided critical threat information to businesses, and the president's executive order partially resolves that problem, but only partially. Executive orders are, as the name suggests, not legislation, and they can be rescinded at any time. Legislation would be better, but the Washington deadlock essentially ensures that if the Capitol was on fire, the only legislation that might pass would be a resolution to consider having a committee investigate the possible ways to extinguish it. Under the executive order, companies that operate the electrical grid and financial institutions and other critical operations will be able to join an experimental program that will provide up-to-date reports about cybersecurity. Once they have the information, though, companies will be free to act on the threat analysis or simply ignore it. And although the Department of Homeland Security will recommend steps that companies should follow to prevent attacks, even banks and electric companies will not be required to do anything. The measure is in many ways simply security theater. Although well-intentioned and necessary, the executive order is not sufficient. The executive order cannot include specific instructions for how infrastructure should be protected. That would require congressional action. Meanwhile, the outdated hardware that's used by many systems that are critical to everyday life remain at high risk. In the previous session of Congress, Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano, FBI Director Robert Mueller, and others testified in private congressional sessions regarding the threats faced by the nation. And still, nothing happened. Nothing. The attacks aren't some futuristic scenario, either. The Department of Homeland Security is already reporting electronic attacks on oil pipelines and electrical power stations, among others. I recall an incident back in the 1970s at a gasoline storage facility here in Columbus. A small error in Cleveland allowed gasoline to overflow the tanks here and created a very dangerous situation. So what if somebody flipped a switch, not accidentally, but on purpose? Homeland Security says that infrastructure attacks increased by more than 50% in 2012 from 2011. Some of the attacks were successful. So what happens when coordinated attacks are launched against natural gas pipelines, gasoline distribution systems, banks, and the electric grid? We can't say we weren't warned. One wonders when Congress will act. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. 
All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.